at the end of the day, our God has blessed us with the ability of rational reasoning to make decisions that no other creature on this planet can make. We just have to be men and women enough to be able to bite the bullet and make the decision that's in the interest of the collective good and not in ourselves. When I started making the interest in my community or decisions that was based on what is in the benefit of the community, I stopped going to prison. I stopped using drugs. When I started looking in the face of babies and thinking, how does my decisions impact them? I stopped making bad decisions and I started consulting other people. I started surrounding myself as just like you, the same judges or treatment people that used to judge that made judgment on us now call us for help. I'm Heather Venegas, and you're listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of King County Recovery Conversations. My name is Elise Bryson, and I'm here with as a co-host today with Deontay Damper with Vocal Washington. Uh, Deontay, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Deontay Damper, pronouns he, him, his. I am the community organizer for Voices of Community Activists and Leaders, where we seek to bring political power to community members that have been impacted by HIV, substance use, mass incarceration, and of course, the war on drugs and homelessness. I also am the program manager for CEDU, which is Council for Expert Advisors on Drug Use, where we are compensating our community members that are experts in the areas of uh, of people that use substances. And we want to make sure that they're compensated for their time. We're going to actually unpack that in in an episode later on. But I'm just so happy to be here. Shout out to Heather. I hope she's been enjoying her Thanksgiving holiday. So I'm so happy to come in as a host today. Oh, we're so glad to have you. And we have another guest with us, Franklin Smith, who is with the Fresh Start Project as well as Freedom Project. Franklin, would you like to say hello? Well, good morning. Good morning. And uh, just to go back, um, well, first, my name is Franklin Smith. I am the co-founder, uh, contracting compliance officer with Fresh Start Professional Services, not Fresh Start Project. And I'm oh, also sorry. the director of community resources with Freedom Project Washington. Both organizations are organizations that work with adults in transition uh, from, in, from that have been impacted by criminal justice system that are in transition coming back out of the system and those that are in transition in the community. We, we, we pride ourselves in being a part of the community in which we serve and being of service to those members of the community. I always say you have public service and you have those people who serve their community. So we are an organization that we serve the members of our community. It is our passion and pleasure to be able to do that as well. And it's a pleasure to have you. You know, um, when me and Heather talked over over a meeting in um, um, I was asked to come in to host a couple of episodes. I thought to myself, hey, as we are moving forward in the areas of recovery, in the areas of our advocacy, um, I always think back. I think back to the 90s. I think back to the 80s um, where there wasn't very much, ac- there wasn't any access to, to care. And when I thought about that, I had to think about one of the community heroes. So Franklin, I'm so happy that you're here today. 
And I kind of wanted to talk back, like, like we talk so much now about moving forward. Can you walk us through what it was like uh, throughout the 80s and the 90s in the areas of your your, your path? Well, I mean, and, and, you know, being born and raised in Seattle, Washington, uh, the son of a jazz blues entertainer. There's not a lot of miss. Her name was B. Smith. She had, I asked oh, my well. mother actually went to labor with me on stage at what was called the Colony Club in the basement of the Smith Tower building back in the 60s. Wow. She was part of the opening act at the World's Fair, and that's what brought her to Washington State um, in the first place. And she was a powerhouse. Uh, she, she, the book of Seattle, she's mentioned in the book, uh, giving giving a lot of credit where they used to call her the mother of jazz and blues. Uh, so growing wow. up through that period, um, and 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 being coming out of a family of six, where I was the youngest son, but there were three decades. So I was two years, three years, uh, uh, uh younger than the older group, but two years older than the younger group. So I was the mother's boy because I couldn't go with my little sisters when they had to go get babysitted and I couldn't stay at home with the older kids. So my mother used to take me everywhere with her. Hey, um, growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I was a time really where Seattle I was extremely segregated. Hey, the century was people... Uh, pride themselves on the day um, was a predominantly African American area, okay. and everybody pretty much knew everybody. We we had um, an extended family structure that stretched from, I would say, Broadway, Madison down to Madison Beach, over to Jackson, Chinatown area and stretched all the way up into Mount Baker. And it was predominantly mm. African-American, and you could go anywhere in the area, and somebody knew somebody that knew your family. And a lot of the care, a lot of the concern came from, from people in the community that, I mean, really was more of a family structure. As time went on, we started to venture out into other areas. We started to get dislocated, and as we started to get dislocated, so that 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 connection to community started to get dislocated. Okay. And there's one yeah. thing that you had mentioned when we look at today versus yesterday. And I, I don't think there's any any stretch of imagination because I look at poverty and marginalization and underserved pretty much in the same light. And it's like they say, poverty is not the fault of poor people. Poverty is the fault of systems and institutions that limit or deny individuals the opportunity to receive information or have access to information that will improve their situation. So, like through, throughout that, right? What was it like, like as you as a as a person in their twenties and thirties, and and navigating through your life through how can I put it through extracurricular activities? <laughs> Well, I mean, for, for a lot of us, I mean, growing up back then, as with now, especially here, you know, sports was the gateway out of the hood. And growing up in the hood, and that's what takes us back to poverty. Because when we look at a community, um, the community is no stronger than the information. 
And when we talk about uh, the central area of Seattle, uh, we're talking about an area that were economically challenged. We're talking about an area where people uh, operated on limited information. So you didn't, I mean, you had those mm-hmm. people that were doing good, but the majority of people were middle class. Okay? And the information um, was pretty much the same. And instead of a dollar being able to circulate four or five times in a community before it left to build community and generational wealth, the information only circulated and the money never stayed. Okay? And the yeah. problem there is if the information is limited, how strong is the community? So when we yeah. look at so when what we look at what you're talking about, I and actually, you know, what was so funny, um, we ran into uh, a friend of mine, Anthony Allen, him and his brother went, they actually were were several individuals that made it to professional sports. Out of all of us, you know, it was only out of a out of a hundred, you might get one if that actually make it into the pros. And his family was pretty fortunate because they had two sons. And they were the community heroes. And that was something, and just like with Joyce Walker being able to be the first female to make it to the Harlem Globetrotters and represent women in professional sports. Um, you have a lot of uh, uh, trail setters. I mean, you have a lot of gate openers, door openers. I mean, but for a lot of us, trying to find a pathway out through education, through the military. For me, it was military. I graduated high school prior to my 17th birthday. Um, But at the same time period, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to move into. So I took the route and went into the military. But for me, the military was more of an introduction into substance abuse than anything else. Because it was a very authoritative, repressive, suppressive environment. I didn't really take well. And after the training and everything was done, like a lot of people, I found myself over in the bar uh, having one. And the more I traveled, the more I started to influence and started to experiment with substance use. To the fact that when I finally came home after my tour of duty, I had a full-blown codeine addiction, alcoholism addiction, and here in um, Washington was when crack was really starting to take off. So I feel mm-hmm. right in the midst of that, what we you think COVID was a pandemic, crack cocaine was a, was out. If, if that was a pandemic, I don't even know what you want to call crack cocaine. That was an epidemic. So, <laughs> well, let's, but, but, oh my gosh. So let's, so that's, you know, and that's one of the things that, um, that 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 can you walk us through like what that epidemic looked like in community because some people are just not familiar with it they're just like oh they heard it in a rap song or or they see movies about it but walk us through what the epidemic looked like in community and also with yourself for me i can actually trace my addiction because the the substance use or, or recreational substance uses and addiction issues that I had when I first got here was actually overshadowed um, with the introduction of crack to myself because of how strong it was and, and how easy access it was. So if we want to look at how crack was in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s. All we got to do is look at how fit no is today. Hey, 
and how wow. and, and, and wow. how rampant and how fast it went because at the end of the day um and, and the fentanyl epidemic is not something that's new it's something that emerged out of something else a where crack in itself was more of a situation where people found it as a quick way of being able to sustain themselves. Other people found it as a way of uplifting. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how we will want to use something to uplift our, our own economic structure, but not really concern ourselves about how the effects of what we're doing is impacting our community. Okay. And that's exactly what the crack epidemic brought was more community harm because not only were people being uh, uh, impacted by the crack coke by, by crack cocaine itself, but when we look at the rise in crime, and then when we look at the ridiculous laws that came out of it, because society didn't know how to deal with it. Today, the mm -hmm. same. It's it, it's amazing because my life going from there was also impacted by the criminal justice system, and a lot of laws that I was sent to prison by. People are sent to treatment <laughs> today. So instead of when I look at it, possession of crack cocaine or public usage, which is condoned or starting not to be condoned today, was something that I probably gave Department of Corrections 20 years of my life during that period. So when we talk about harm, that's when we talk about how our system, how our society, how our lawmakers how even our community respond to some of the things that are going on is are they helping the community? Are they creating future harm to community members? And, and, and that is, that is a deep, that's a deep question. And then I like, you know, one of the things that you said, like when we talked about like how community members were being treated with, uh, with incarceration, can you unpack like some of those laws because some people might not be be familiar with that. Well, you, or, when you look at the war on drugs, was that a war on drugs okay. or was that a war on poor people? Was it a war on poor because people? Because at the end of the day, you could go to prison for one rock of crack cocaine and somebody with the same amount of powder cocaine can get a citation a, or a gateway into treatment. So when we look at it, we we, we have to look at who was the target of these laws? Okay. And in, 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 in hindsight, and it's really disturbing in hindsight when you look at it because crack was prevalent in whose community? Okay. And not necessarily African-American communities, but more so in marginalized, underserved communities and those people who used it and or sold it did it either to relieve plain or to find some type of financial assistance to be able to uplift themselves out of their economic condition. Okay. So it didn't make a difference if they were white, black, green, or yellow. But when we looked at people who use powder cocaine, same amounts, different sentences. Mm -hmm. okay. And the impact really devastated communities that was already hurting based on economic disparity. In the disparity, you, you touched on something, right? 
I know you're, you you were saying that you gave them 20 years of your life, but before that, you talked a little bit about your mo- your mother being a Miss B being a famous blues singer. How did that affect affect your surroundings as you came back, like serving the military? And thank you for your service, uh, serving the military. Um, we kind of watched this kind of happen since Vietnam, like community members going off to fight the wars and then coming back uh, with a habit. How did that affect uh, your circle, your your core, your circle, your family? Um, for me, I mean, I, I was married. Oh well. So come, yeah. So coming back, I mean, uh, uh, carrying this 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 monkey on my back. Um, my mother died. Shortly after I arrived back wow. into Washington State. Oh my God! And that was the first, my first introduction to crack cocaine. I never forget it. Uh, and I can trace the usage of crack cocaine um, twenty years back to Virginia Mason Hospital. Wow! When we took her to the hospital for a routine surgery, uh, and she had a heart attack in the elevator and died in the in the room with me and my partner there. Wow. Hey, and as we left, he had some crack cocaine in the car and he went to take a hit and I said, give me a hit. That was probably the worst mistake I ever made in my life because it took 20 years for me to get a hold of that addiction. Hey, but at the end of the day, when you look at the introduction of something that and then and and we can talk about all the political ramifications that even brought crack cocaine to the communities and why people use it for whatever. I mean, it just really comes down to the fact why do we use each other? Mm-hmm. I mean, why 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 do we exploit each other? Yeah, a, for economic gain. And without looking at the repercussions of our actions, we talk about um, impacts that we should all stop and do an impact study Mm -hmm. on how our actions will affect our loved ones. If it takes a village to raise a child, then we should do an impact study on what does that look like when we make these adverse decisions. Yeah. Because it's not just you who's affected by your decision, it's everybody that you touch. Yeah. That's affected by the decision. And there, I mean, we look at going from no police involvement in my life to 20 years of the revolving door plan with the criminal justice system, to 20 years of crack cocaine addiction, to 20 years of trying to uh, figure out why I wasn't surviving, why I wasn't striving, why I wasn't being productive when I knew that I wasn't crazy, even though we talk to the mental health professionals and you're giving these title, you're giving these uh, categories and classifications. I never forget being asked, um, did I believe in God? Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I'm born Christian. I don't believe in God. Well, do I believe that the world after this one would be better than this one? Yeah, that's what we taught as Christians that the next life, the life with God would be better than this one. Hey, well, have I developed a plan to get to that next life? 
Now you see how these questions are setting up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, it came down paranoid, schizophrenic with suicidal tendencies. Wow. And when you look at it, somebody, you know, when I went to college and I was fortunate that, that I was able to get a degree in prison, it, it, it took a while. They took colleges out of prisons and now they finally bringing them back. But I had I had an economic professor that was just incredible, uh, a psychology professor. And a lot of them talked about and introduced information that you wouldn't even get in normal schools, just like a lot of the work by Dr. Wade Nobles with definitional power. Power is my ability to define reality and have you accept that definition as if you created it themselves. How many times have you heard people repeat what they have heard a professional tell them they are. Mm -hmm. I'm paranoid schizophrenic. I got suicidal tendencies. (laughs) I ain't none of that. Right. And what was it like for yourself, right, to go through this, to go to, well, to save our country, come back home, and then be put through the incarceral system kind of more so as opposed to actually getting you an opportunity to, as opposed to <laughs> incarceration, they sometimes, I guess back in the day, they would look at incarceration as a forced treatment type of thing. Um, and I'm quite sure you watched community folks even go through that process too, of just kind of going through that incarceral system. How was, how was it for you navigating through that space um, in, in, I guess, finding, reco- finding recovery through that, did, were you able to find recovery through incarceration or did it turn into what was, what was the point of where you were able to turn, figure out where your turnaround was? So that takes us back to, um, my comment about poverty and about access to information, even in the education system, we talk about the school to prison pipeline system. We talk about individuals operating on limited information, even going from graduating high school with that limited information, going into military with that limited information, coming back to the community, still not really having the tools to navigate systems. And because you don't really have the tools to navigate systems, you're not able to take advantage or you don't have the supportive network around you to be able to take advantage of resources in the community. First, you have to be able to identify what is a resource. A lot of us, and we're talking about drug addiction, we're talking about crack cocaine and, and, and how people use that as a resource to improve their economy. But at the same time, you might be improving your individual value, your individual financial position, but you're not generating wealth and you're destroying your community in the process. So when we look at that in relationship to the impact of the uh, incarceration in the, 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 when we look at the migration into the criminal justice system and that impact. For me, the first thing that I seen when I got off the bus at McNeil Island, a quarter of my community in prison, mm. I didn't find myself in fear of being sent to prison where you got all these horror stories about what can happen to a person in prison because I seen people that I hadn't seen in years 
that was incarcerated in prison, you know, they say one in three individuals will succeed. One succeed, one's going to prison. The last one, if he's lucky or unlucky, he's going to be in a grave. Mm -hmm. And that's been pretty much the math that we both grew up with. So here we have, I had two brothers, one, one's actually today both dead, but one was successful. One went to prison. I went to the military. I came back. I went to prison. Okay. And then when I look at the system, when I went in and I talk about it today, it's like, okay, why was there a quarter of my community in prison? The same cats that I went to Garfield High School with, same cats I went to Ballard High School with, with Madrona, TT Minor, going all the way back to elementary school, I could find somebody, a representative of that time in my life behind bars. I did time with three generations, grandfather, father, and son, all in one institution mm. coming out of the sanctuary in Seattle. So when you, when you look at it, it goes back to that statement, information. The community ain't bad. The information in the community is limited. And individuals are winding up getting caught up in this trap because they're following that same pattern of information. How do we break that? You break that by being introduced to new information. And that's one of the things that for me, uh, being blessed with studying different religions, being blessed with being able to get my college degree, uh, looking at the works of Dr. Dr. Neil Akbar, Dr. Wade Nobles, having a brother, beautiful brother as Carl Mack, the former president of NAACP, spending his time coming up to the institution, supporting us, supporting our programs, and hammering into us the same. If you know your, if you know your history, if you know your history, then you know about the stories of where you came from. You know about the greatness of the people you came from. You know about the experience today. We as African-American people have an African legacy that most of us don't even have a clue of what that's about. Mm -hmm. We have American experience that the majority of us call a nightmare because we're not enjoying the fruits of the American experience. And then we have some type of religious or fraternal affiliation yeah. that we cling to today. Some of the little brothers call, we call some of the little brothers gang members, but it's still the same thing. It's a fraternal. Mm -hmm. and they have a brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at when we look at how that criminal justice system impacts people, it impacts people by one, it's an even worse stagnated environment than the one they came from. And when we look at people, like I say, hurt people hurt people. So when people go into the system, we look at the traumatization that they went to prior to their incarceration. And when they get inside, is there any means? of being able to treat the trauma or even identify the trauma while they're in there. Most likely not because a person has to recognize they've been traumatized in order to get some help for the trauma. If you don't accept what you've been through, you can't get to the other side. And that's the same thing about the addiction issue. Going in, now I'm separated from the drugs. Mm -hmm. And walking off all these years, the longest sentence I did was a 10-year bit. Inside the Department of Corrections, I never got an infraction. An infraction in prison is like a violation out here on the street. Correction officers are like police. Okay. And inside, they're, 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 it's an ecosystem just like out here. 
So in there, how can a person do well in structure and come out here? And I went to prison five times, come out here and not do well. So we have to look at systems and support to be able to understand what is the makeup that we need to have in order to effectively transition somebody into the community and to have that person actually dealt with. Now, I remember I went in with a crack cocaine addiction. Mm -hmm. And I never forget, they sent me to a camp for drug treatment, but the camp had a riot. And the drug treatment counselor left. Oh, wow. So instead of me getting treatment and half off my sentence, I did say instead of me getting dosa, I did mosa because I did most of my time <laughs> and got back released back to the street. Oh wow. <laughs> and were With you clean? Me, were, did you were, did you come back? Were you clean or were you did you did you go were you back? Did you relapse by the time you got it? Just like anybody in recovery and anybody that's serious about recovery would tell you, you could be physically clean, but you're still mentally impacted by your experiences. Mm -hmm. they, that's why they call people, places, and things. Mm -hmm. they, so if a person doesn't have a strong supportive network when they reemerge from inside these holes to even include treatment centers, the likelihood of them going back to the old behavior is very high. Why? Because it's familiar behavior. The drug isn't the problem. The mindset is the problem. <laughs> and how we see the drug is the problem. Franklin, I was hey. doing a deep dive on the Freedom Project website last night, and I saw some some data or some research that, that echoes what you're saying. And it talks about, you know, of the X number of people that are coming out of prison, you know, over 50% of them aren't getting the right tools that they need to, to thrive. And so I would love to know, you've seen and done so much over your life. When did you start to see that things, and I hope they have started, started to move in a positive direction and laws started to get made to provide services where people could thrive? Like, when did you see that start to happen in your experience? Um, so for me, and it's kind of funny because it's just really one of those things that um, when you're displaced from a community and then you're dropped back off in that same community with little or no resources, uh, you are destined to fail unless you just have a strong constitution and a will not to fail. Each time that I came back to Washington, I mean, to Seattle, Washington, after being incarcerated, I don't, and I tell people this today, I don't know anybody that walks out of a prison and say, hey, man, I'll see you when I come back. But unfortunately, we have a lot of people that do. Mm -hmm. hey, and I was one. Because your social network is that, that subsystem that helps you move forward. As human beings, we're social beings. Hey, so if I don't have a social network that's moving in a pro-social or positive manner, then I'm going to go back to what's familiar to me. And a lot of times our social network, to include our families, are not the best place for us to go. So for me, coming out in Freedom Project, 
was actually, you know, the, the Franklin Freedom Project is uh, ooh, about 21, 22 years old. And it actually started uh, with two organizations, I mean, two individuals in the Monroe Correctional Center at, at, uh, at the uh, Minimum Security Division. And we were all there together, uh, Rusty, Rusty Thomas and Dow Gordon, and we had this little culture club. Um, so when I first got out, I didn't even know they created this organization out of this experiment that we had where uh, Jay Jackson and Lucy Liu uh, came in and did nonviolent communication and mindfulness training. And the one thing about a lot of prison programs, and we call them prison programs, because up until 2014, 2015, the majority of the programs stayed within the prison. And really up until last year, a person like say yourself or, or, or Deontay who came in as a volunteer inside the prison to work with the population could not have a relationship with that person for one year once that person resurfaced. Mm -hmm. Because if you did, you would violate your volunteer status. Yeah. That, that law just, that rule just changed. They finally got rid of that rest of those ridiculous rule that they could ever have. Why, why did that, I mean, it does sound ridiculous. Yeah. Why did that law exist to begin with? Because, what was the purpose? Uh, there, there could be a, I, that's another, that's another episode. But, but the thing here is, and, and like you said, I mean, for me, and actually one of them was Deontay's father. Okay. Because in my world, there were a lot of people that served as good examples, but at the same time period, people knew how deadly and how devastating it was to involve yourself too closely to somebody that's on the edge. And I had a lot of people that came out of that addiction circle. Now, Deontay's father had a little touring company. We, they even employed me one time I came out back when the, the company was called Gill's $20 Touring Service. Hey, and 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 we we worked, we did everything. That probably was the longest time during that period that I stayed out because I stayed busy. And I went from being an alcoholic and a drug addict to a workaholic because we worked almost 24 hours a day back then. Hey, towing people's cars at $20 a hookup, $2 a mile. And we was all over, we was all over the county. But it was a beautiful thing. Hey. But unfortunately for me, that when that played out, my addiction didn't. My infatuation with crack cocaine didn't. And all it did was stick the wrong person at the right place at the right time to be able to get caught up. Okay. So it really comes back to constitution and how strong a person is, how strong a person's support system is. Being able to utilize some of the tools that we learn when we're going through the 12 steps, being able to pick up the strongest tool in your box and walking people through that. So for me, the turnaround really came um, through doing the work that I was doing in the prison out here. Because today we have what we call effective transition. The governor's house bill 1605, successfully transitioning people out of prison by connecting resources through the state. Um, I don't know if Deontay told, I was the first individual to be hired by the Department of Corrections to be the first reentry navigator. I was getting into that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> to transition people from prison back to the community. 
And I did that for seven and a half years before I resigned two years ago. How was that process for you to come in um, and be able to do that? I mean, you built a lot of systems um, in that space. Uh, I talk a lot. You'll hear me to the listeners. You'll hear me say things about community compasses. Um, And a lot of the work that you did, Franklin, was a part of that community compass to kind of pull in community in to, 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 for DLC to see resources that they haven't seen before. What was that process like for you? Well, and it, it, it kind of goes back to what your dad did for me. I, um, because it, 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 it was one thing that understanding why people don't succeed was a lack of support. But then a person has to have a, a structure. If you're coming out of structure and you do good in structure, then you have to have a good structure to go to. So back then, we have a lot of halfway or transition houses that were more traps than they were productive pathways for people. So I involved myself with one, and I created a program called Silver Solutions out in South King County with the assistance of a, of a family who just wanted to help people to, just, to do their part to try to end homelessness. And so instead, I talked to them and said, well, let's do this with people coming out of prison. And it started with a two-bedroom apartment. And before I knew it, I had 13 apartment complexes. And we were servicing over 200 people. And it was that same pathway of being able to connect with people before they come out, find out what it is that they would like to do and get them connected with resources while they were still inside. So when they came out, they had places to go. They had people that were expecting them, um, their, 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 their EBT or their SNAP benefits and everything was right there and ready. But in, in the interim, the biggest part of it was me going out and establishing relationships with community-based organizations that was doing this work. And I was amazed at how many people were out here doing the work under the radar or that weren't getting supported by grants or that weren't getting supported by this, but who were impacted by the system because they had family members in the system. And everybody was asking the same thing. How do we help? Well, we help by coming together. And that's what we did. We came together. We created our own little network. And from that network, we were able to funnel people through the housing program, get them connected with resources, get them working in the community. And I didn't even know that I was being tracked by the Department of Corrections at that time, or at least people in housing with Department of Corrections who came and told me my success rate, because I'm just doing the work. I'm not tracking how many people are succeeding, how many people are not here. Half the people weren't even leaving. <laughs> and so... <laughs> They were love because people get comfortable where they're at. I was comfortable being homeless for six years. I was comfortable living in a tent and living down there in the jungles in downtown Seattle. So in understanding that, if that's the model, if we know people get comfortable, why don't we get them comfortable in something that's proactive, productive, and in their interest and see how that works. And it worked real well. We had people moving straight from transitional housing through the landlord liaison project into permanent housing and then on into owning their own homes. And that's how today I have my own um, little cheesy thing, but my own 
first time home buyers class yeah. <laughs> that, that we teach people. It's a power hour that, that we have. We invite people to come be a part of. Yeah. And we answer questions about home ownership. What does that look like? Because now we're trying to reverse that model that says if limited information is what we find in our community, then let's put some constructive, powerful information back in the community. I just have to give you your flowers, um, at least. I was going <laughs> to tell you this, but this brother is a housing guru. And I mean, I don't talk about it very much, but I did used to, I, I did work for Department of Corrections as well. And when I yep. tell you, there was something about me in Franklin when it came to that pandemic hit. And if you would have seen how much we were striving going to, he was teaching me how to build relationships with, with these different entity folks uh, that had their houses and like we would go look at the house and it's like have you ever thought turning this into something right do you you know because we have these programs and it was such a great it was such a great I, I i dealt with a lot of just like imposter syndrome when i was working through there but uh appreciative of franklin because it was very much like him building those relationships and it wasn't just him coming in as somebody working for Department of Corrections, he was someone that was going into the areas of the Central District and the South End, which are heavily gentrified and saying, you know what? I'm doing this for my people who aren't here, who need to be in this area to get the access that they need um, to feel home. Because this is the home that they were home in, and now you've taken it away. But I want to bring them back here and start giving them all these tools that are surrounded around them because they're, I want to give them this housing because their medical is up the street and their NA meetings down the street. And then their job is, is, is three blocks down the street. And the way that this man would make sure that he is grounding, we're not like, he's not housing people. He's grounding them, making sure that community is grounding along with them. And I just, I have to throw out those flowers because during that pandemic, I did not know what to do. And one day on an episode, we will unpack that. But I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate Franklin for being like, this is how you do it. Um, and I know that you have so many success stories uh, with, uh, with, with D DLC, but I do want to kind of segue into, you know. But now you got, you got one too. And I'm, I'm going to throw this out here because this, this, this goes to you. You, go, you guys own this. I'm gonna throw the name uh, uh, Quest Jolie. Yeah. yeah, Quest is a powerhouse with the county right now. Oh wow! Okay, he just did a deconstruction project where he hired. He, he's partnered with about five different organizations. He works for the for King County's deconstruction. They're green jobs. You know, he owns two houses. He has two transition houses, and he owns his own LLC. And this is a guy that um, Deontay and the team uh, is one of his first people. And just based on following the lead of what he just described, this young man, I don't know if anybody else did, but this young man, not only did he take advantage of that opportunity, but he leveraged it to today. He's a powerhouse with King County. You need to, you need to reach out to him because he is your success story. Oh, wow. Wow. 
Okay, so I didn't know that, but it's good to know. It is good to know. But I'm just going to also- throw flowers at both of you. I'm just going to start throwing all the flowers. I don't know. You know. I don't know. This is incredible. And, and you know, um, and the thing is, right, you leaving DLC, and it's like the relationships that you have had, right, coming out of working for a, for a government entity um, and then starting your own. Can you segue into, like, the work that you and Terry are doing, um, Terry, in, in the Freedom Project. Can you tell us more about Fresh Start, Freedom Project, and some of the other work that you've been doing? So, so you know, Freedom Project, like I said, they go back over 27 years, over two decades, mm-hmm. of doing pre- and post-release work. When they started with the nonviolent communication, mindfulness training, going inside the institutions, hosting workshops, establishing mentorships. And remember, we were talking about if you volunteered on the inside, you couldn't have a relationship with a person on the outside. Yeah. That was actually impacted by that because they had a mentorship program on the inside where they would go in and they would be working with individuals. But the mentors could not have a relationship with the person once they got out at least for the first year. So that was something that in the advocacy work and the justice reform work that Freedom Project does today, um, and, the, and, and the reason why that, that rule don't exist is because of that advocacy work. But pre- and post-release success is really the basis of transitional success. It, it, it really goes down a little deeper because the first thing you have to do when you look at releasing people back into society Yeah. after whatever it is. You have to make sure that where you're sending them, that person felt a part of that community before they left. Because a lot of times when you look at people, we're dropping people off in areas that they weren't accepted by the community. If they weren't accepted by the community, then are they going to feel comfortable now? And if they don't have a structured, safe place to return to, the likelihood of them going back is going to be greater because they're already coming out with a negative stigma and that's how they see their own transition. So when we talk about substance abuse and all the rest of that stuff being piled up on top of that, because here people don't use drugs. Some people use drugs because actually me, I I say people use drugs because it makes them feel better about who they are. And some people wind up getting caught up in that feeling. And unfortunately, we have some bad stuff out here that's changing the metabolic system that people have. Alcohol has always been one that we know changes the metabolic system. Opiates is one that changes the metabolic system to where the addiction and then how people are creating these drugs today, making that addictive effect so strong that it's hard. It used to be in the days, the worst thing that you had to worry about was nicotine. Now, nicotine is the least of your worries <laughs> when it comes to, or caffeine is the least of your worries when it comes to addiction and how it's impacting people. Yeah. They, and when we look at it, and I tell people when I have that conversation, why do we get high? Is it because we're trying to be alone, to get along, or are we trying to feel better about who we are? And if we're trying to feel better about who we are, well, let me introduce you to something that's already in you that each day you get up in the morning like I do. I go to sleep. I think last night I I finally hit the bed about 1230 and I was up at 530 this morning because I'm just blessed to be in the opportunity to be able to help people 
move forward with your life. Hey, I ain't never been this high in a long time. And the one thing I ain't got to worry about is having a hangover in the morning when I get up and I still get the blessing of being able to help somebody today I didn't help yesterday. And I love that for you. And, you know, as we're wrapping, right, I just want to just say, you know, um, before we close, because I know I got a question to ask you before we do. Um, I just want to say that, you know, my recovery journey, when they asked me, hey, who do you want to interview? You're the first person I thought about because you you are a big piece of my recovery journey. Um, even in the midst of me being in the most darkest places, it was you reminding me that I have work to do. And the work really started with me, right? But but even in the midst, when I have been cast out, you are, you are, I, when people ask me who you are, I say Uncle Franklin because that's who you are to me, um, besides colleague and, and community. Um, as, I've, as I've evolved in my space, I have not made a move without calling and checking in with you with what I'm doing. And, 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 and you know, that's the beautiful thing about you, though, because you understand. Hey, sometimes you have to be uncomfortable to get comfortable. And the worst uncomfortable feeling that you can have is your own shame about something you did. But at the end of the day, and you know me, I ain't got a problem cutting the LYN off the back of Franklin and just having that frank conversation with you because now we're in harm's way. And it's like they say there's three words in the word knowledge. No ledge edge. <laughs> know where the ledge is before you fall off the edge. I like so that. So when you're calling somebody, you're on the ledge. So I can't, I can't play with you while you're on the ledge. I got to be frank and have that hard conversation to get you to back up. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, our God has blessed us with the ability of rational reasoning to make decisions that no other creature on this planet can make. We just have to be men and women enough to be able to bite the bullet and make the decision that's in the interest of the collective good and not in ourselves. When I started making the interest in my community or decisions that was based on what is in the benefit of the community, I stopped going to prison. I stopped using drugs. When I started looking in the face of babies and thinking, how does my decisions impact them? I stopped making bad decisions and I started consulting other people. I started surrounding myself as just like you, the same judges or treatment people that used to judge that made judgment on us now call us for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I resign in DOC, but you can't tell because they blow up my phone. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the work that I was doing before Department of Corrections is the reason why they came knocking on the door. Because the one thing they had to admit is that we didn't, we don't know what we're doing. But you seem to know how to transition people in the community. So what are you doing that we're not doing? Mm -hmm. And the first thing I'm doing is sitting down and having enough sense to have the empathy with the person to allow them to let me know what they want to do. And then we have a real conversation about the reality of what they can do versus what it is they would like to do. And we, when you and I represented, we work with the department, we represented a lot of the myth busting. 
that you can't get a job when you get out or you can't own a home when you get out or you can't do this when you got, there's a whole lot of can'ts. But the one thing I can't do is I can't quit. I can't give up because there's too many people waiting for me to do that so they could come along with their, with their magic pills or their magic drink or this here. And I have an addictive personality. So the first thing I have to do is I have to get to know me. I have to get to be able to respect me. And I'm taking another a cheesy opportunity to to, to, to to introduce my book. Okay. I had to take charge yeah, of I was, my future. I was, I was about to <laughs> I was about to segue. So what is the book called? It's called Take Charge of Your Future. <laughs> take charge of your future. And where can people get it? Like you can get it on Amazon. Well, you can contact you can contact Fresh Start Professional <laughs> Services. You can get it through us. You know, I, I give you guys a signed autograph copy. Oh, we get <laughs> oh, we get copies. <laughs> you gotta come, gotta come down to our office on 14th and Yesler in the Yesler building. <laughs> and we have we have copies of the books up there. But I mean, the thing is, before we go, I, I just like to tell the community out there, for those that are struggling, don't give up on yourselves. Please take time. Think about what you're doing. Go back in your head and look at the faces of those people who believed in you. Because a lot of the things that we're running from and a lot of things that they told us, truth hurts. But I'd rather get hurt by the truth than to get hurt out here in these streets. I love that. I love And I got a whole lot of correction marks in my face because it took me years to figure that out. Yeah. But I know one thing. There are a lot of good people in Washington State, and they're looking for an opportunity to demonstrate their goodness. But nobody is going to use, I put like this, I can't say nobody. I'm not going to work harder than you to help you. Yeah. As long as you're willing to help yourself, we're willing to connect you with the resources to succeed. Eagles don't fly with pigeons. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to look at the people that are keeping you down and identify who they are so that you're able to fly like the bird you're supposed to be. And you are flying, Franklin. And I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy that you have came here with this King County Recovery Conversation. This is exactly <laughs> what we need to be getting into the close of the new year. Um, these are the messages that we need. We appreciate you. Um, and I'm just so happy. At least, how you feeling, girl? How was that? Thank you so much, uh, Frank. I, you know, I've le- I've learned a ton today. I, I want to throw flowers. I want to fly with eagles. Um, I just uh, and you know, for our listeners at home, you cannot see these two fine gentlemen smile, but they are bright and they are gleaming, and they're a little bit contagious. Um, and I know that that I know that that's an inside job. Right. I know that's an inside job in order for that to show on the outside. Um, so I thank you both for your work and your service to our community and, and that you're both pushing forward for a better future for everyone. Yes. Thank you very much. And thank both of you guys for having me and to your listeners out there. I, if you if you want to give yourself a chance, if you want to get out and be a part of this work, please either go to freshstartprofessionalservices.org, look at the work, reach out to us. We do community service work. We do health fairs. We have a digital equity class getting ready to start up in January or tap in over at freedomproject.org, freedomprojectwa.org. 
We have a whole lot of work for adults in transition who's interested in just really finding your way. Come surround yourself with people like yourself who's leading the way to a brighter future. We'll be looking for you. Remember, every day is a day for a fresh start. We appreciate you, brother. And I appreciate you, Lise. Girl, we had fun today. Oh, we had fun today. Yes. Come on. Come and, on. In, and in the meantime, everyone, uh, there is a road to recovery. And coming here through this podcast, you will hear different roads. We're just so happy that you came down this road today. Thank you so much. Hope you all have a great day. Take care. Thank you. I'm Heather Venegas. Thanks for listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. If you or a loved one are experiencing substance use disorder, problem gambling, and or a mental health challenge, please visit the Washington Recovery Helpline at warecoveryhelpline.org for resources and a 24-hour helpline. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to our production team at Work P2P Studios. If you'd like to share your recovery journey with us, please email me at heather at kcrecovery.org. We'll be back in two weeks with another story of hope, resilience, and healing. Thank you.